Section 49 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain Volume 6 Chapter 47 Letters, 1909 To Howells and Others Life at Stormfield Copyright Extension Death of Jean Clemens Clemens remained at Stormfield all that winter. New York was sixty miles away, and he did not often care to make the journey. He was constantly invited to this or that public gathering, or private party, but such affairs had lost interest for him. He preferred the quiet of his luxurious home with its beautiful outlook, while for entertainment he found the billiard afternoons sufficient. Guests came from the city now and again for weekend visits, and if he ever was restless or lonely, he did not show it. Among the invitations that came was one from General O. O. Howard, asking him to preside at a meeting to raise an endowment fund for a Lincoln Memorial University at Cumberland Gap, Tennessee. Closing his letter, General Howard said, Never mind if you did fight on the other side. To General O. O. Howard, Stormfield, Redding, Connecticut, January 12, 09. Dear General Howard, You'll pay me a most gratifying compliment in asking me to preside, and it causes me very real regret that I'm obliged to decline, for the object of the meeting appeals strongly to me, since that object is to aid in raising the $500,000 endowment fund for Lincoln Memorial University. The endowment fund will be the most fitting of all the memorials the country will dedicate to the memory of Lincoln. Serving as it will, to uplift his very own people. I hope you will meet with complete success, and I am sorry I cannot be there to witness it and help you rejoice. But I am older than people think, and besides, I live away out in the country and never stir from home, except at geological intervals, to fill leftover engagements in Mesozoic times when I was younger and indiscreeter. You ought not to say sarcastic things about my fighting on the other side. General Grant did not act like that. General Grant paid me compliments. He bracketed me with Xenophon. It is there in his memoirs for anybody to read. He said, if all the Confederate soldiers had followed my example and adopted my military arts, he could never have caught enough of them in a bunch to inconvenience the rebellion. General Grant was a fair man and recognized my worth. But you are prejudiced, and you have hurt my feelings. But I have an affection for you anyway. Mark Twain One of Mark Twain's friends was Henniker Heaton, the so-called father of penny postage between England and America. When, after long years of effort, he succeeded in getting the rate established, he at once bent his energies in the direction of cheap cable service, 
and a letter from him came one day to Stormfield concerning his new plans. This letter happened to be overweight, which gave Mark Twain a chance for some amusing exaggerations at his expense. To Henneker Heaton in London, Stormfield, Redden, Connecticut, January 18, 1909. Dear Henneker Heaton, I do hope you will succeed to your heart's desire in your cheap cablegram campaign, and I feel sure you will. Indeed, your cheap postage victory, achieved in spite of a quarter century of determined opposition, is good and rational prophecy that you will. Wireless, not being as yet imprisoned in a Chinese wall of private cash and high-placed and formidable influence, will come to your aid and make your new campaign briefer and easier than the other one was. Now then, after uttering my serious word, am I privileged to be frivolous for a moment? When you shall have achieved cheap telegraphy, are you going to employ it for just your own selfish profit and other people's pecuniary damage the way you are doing with your cheap postage? You get letter postage reduced to two cents an ounce, then you mail me a four-ounce letter with a two-cent stamp on it, and I have to pay the extra freight at this end of the line. I return your envelope for inspection. Look at it. Stamped in one place is a vast T, and under it the figures 40, and under those figures appears an L, a sinister and suspicious and mysterious L. In another place, stamped within a circle, in offensively large capitals, you find the words, DO, EIGHT CENTS. Finally, in the midst of a desert space up nor nor eastward from that circle, you find a figure three of quite unnecessarily aggressive and insolent magnitude, and done with a blue pencil, so as to be as conspicuous as possible. I inquired about these strange signs and symbols of the postman. He said they were post office department signals for his instruction. Instruction for what? To get extra postage. Is it so? Explain. Tell me about the large T and the 40. It's short for take 40, or as we postmen say, grab 40. Go on, please, while I think up some words to swear with. Do 8 means grab 8 more. Continue. The blue pencil 3 was an afterthought. There aren't any stamps for afterthoughts. The sums vary, according to inspiration, and they whirl in the one that suggests itself at the last moment. Sometimes they go several times higher than this one. This one only means hog three cents more, and if you've got fifty-one cents about you, or can borrow it, tell me, who gets this corruption? Half of it goes to the man in England who ships the letter on short postage and the other half goes to the post office department to protect cheap postage from inaugurating a deficit. Blank. I can't blame you. I would say it myself in your place if these ladies were not present. But you see, I'm only obeying orders. I can't help myself. Oh, I know it. 
I'm not blaming you. Finally, what does that L stand for? Get the money or give him L. It's English, you know. Take it and go. It's the last sin I've got in the world. After seeing the Oxford pageant filed by the grandstand, picture after picture, splendor after splendor, 3,500 strong, the most moving and beautiful and impressive and historically instructive show conceivable, you are not to think I would miss the London pageant of next year with its shining host of 15,000 historical English men and women dug from the misty books of all the vanished ages and marching in the light of the sun, all alive and looking just as they were used to look. Mr. Lascelles spent yesterday here on the farm and told me all about it. I shall be in the middle of my seventy-fifth year then, and interested in pageants for personal and prospective reasons. I beg you to give my best thanks to the Bath Club for the offer of its hospitalities, but I shall not be able to take advantage of it, because I am to be a guest in a private house during my stay in London. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens it was in 1907 that Clemens had seen the Oxford pageant during the week when he had been awarded his doctor's degree. It gave him the greatest delight, and he fully expected to see the next one, planned for 1910. In the letter to Howells which follows, we get another glimpse of Mark Twain's philosophy of man, the irresponsible machine. To W. D. Howells in New York, Stormfield, Redden, Connecticut. January 18, 09. Dear Howells, I have to write a line, lazy as I am, to say how your Poe article delighted me, and to say that I am in agreement with substantially all you say about his literature. To me, his prose is unreadable, like Jane Austen's. No, there is a difference. I could read his prose on salary, but not Jane's. Jane is entirely impossible. It seems a great pity that they allowed her to die a natural death. Another thing. You grant that God and circumstances sinned against Poe, but you also grant that he sinned against himself, a thing which he couldn't do and didn't do. It is lively up here now. I wish you could come. Yours ever, Mark. To W. D. Howells, in New York, Stormfield, Redden, Connecticut, three in the morning, April seventeenth, nine. Written with pencil. My pen has gone dry, and the ink is out of reach. Howells, did you write me day before day before yesterday, or did I dream it? In my mind's eye, I most vividly see your handwrite on a square blue envelope in the mail pile. I have hunted the house over, but there is no such letter. Was it an illusion? I'm reading Lowell's letter and smoking. I woke an hour ago, and am reading to keep from wasting the time. On page 305, volume 1, I have just margined a note. 
young friend i like that you ought to see him now it seems startlingly strange to hear a person call you young it was a brick out of a blue sky and knocked me groggy for a moment ah me the pathos of it is that we were young then and he why so was he but he didn't know it he didn't even know it nine years later when we saw him approaching and you warned me saying don't say anything about age he has just turned fifty and thinks he is old and broods over it well clara did sing and you wrote her a dear letter time to go to sleep yours ever mark to daniel kiefer no date daniel kiefer esq dear sir i should be far from willing to have a political party named after me i would not be willing to belong to a party which allowed its members to have political aspirations or to push friends forward for political preferment yours very truly s l clemens the copyright extension for which the author had been working so long was granted by congress in nineteen o nine largely as the result of that afternoon in washington when mark twain had received in uncle joe cannon's private room and preached the gospel of copyright until the daylight faded and the rest of the capital grew still champ clark was the last to linger that day and they had talked far into the dusk clark was powerful and had fathered the bill now he wrote to know if it was satisfactory to champ clark in washington stormfield redden connecticut june five ought nine dear champ clark is the new copyright law acceptable to me emphatically yes clark it is the only sane and clearly defined and just and righteous copyright law that has ever existed in the united states whosoever will compare it with its predecessors will have no trouble in arriving at that decision the bill which was before the committee two years ago when i was down there was the most stupefying jumble of conflicting and apparently irreconcilable interests that was ever seen and we all said the case is hopeless absolutely hopeless out of this chaos nothing can be built but we were in error out of that chaotic mass this excellent bill has been instructed the worn interests have been reconciled and the result is as comely and substantial a legislative edifice as lifts its domes and towers and protective lightning rods out of the statute book i think when i think of that other bill which even the deity couldn't understand and of this one which even i can understand i take off my hat to the man or men who devised this one was it r u johnson was it the author's league was it both together i don't know but i take off my hat anyway johnson has written a valuable article about the new law i enclose it at last at last and for the first time in copyright history we are ahead of england ahead of her in two ways 
by length of time and by fairness to all interests concerned does this sound like shouting then i must modify it all we possessed of copyright justice before the fourth of last march we owed to england's initiative truly yours s l clemens because mark twain amused himself with certain aspects of christian science and was critical of mrs eddy there grew up a wide impression that he jeered at the theory of mental healing when as a matter of fact he was one of its earliest converts and never lost faith in its power the letter which follows is an excellent exposition of his attitude toward the institution of christian science and the founder of the church in america to j wiley smith glasgow scotland stormfield august seventh nineteen o nine dear sir my view of the matter has not changed to wit that christian science is valuable that it has just the same value now that it had when mrs eddy stole it from quimby that its healing principle its most valuable asset possesses the same force now that it possessed a million years ago before quimby was born that mrs eddy organized that force and is entitled to high credit for that then with a splendid sagacity she hitched it to a religion the surest of all ways to secure friends for it and support in a fine and lofty way figuratively speaking it was a tramp stealing a ride on the lightning express ah how did that ignorant village-born peasant woman know the human being so well she has no more intellect than a tadpole until it comes to business then she is a marvel am i sorry i wrote the book most certainly not you see you have five hundred converts in glasgow fifty years from now your posterity will not count them by the hundred but by the thousand i feel absolutely sure of this very truly yours s l clemens clemens wrote very little for publication that year but he enjoyed writing for his own amusement setting down the things that boiled or bubbled within him mainly chapters on the inconsistencies of human deportment human superstition and human creeds the letters from the earth referred to in the following were supposed to have been written by an immortal visitant from some far realm to a friend describing the absurdities of mankind it is true as he said that they would not do for publication though certainly the manuscript contains some of his most delicious writing miss wallace to whom the next letter is written had known mark twain in bermuda and after his death published a dainty volume entitled mark twain in the happy island stormfield redden connecticut november thirteen nine dear betsy i've been writing letters from the earth and if you will come here and see us i will what put the manuscript in your hands with the places to skip marked no i won't trust you quite that far i'll read messages to you this book will never be published in fact it couldn't be 
because it would be felony to soil the males with it, for it is much holy scripture in it of the kind that can't properly be read aloud, except from the pulpit and in family worship. Payne enjoys it, but Payne is going to be damned one of these days, I suppose. The autumn splendors passed you by. What a pity. I wish you had been here. It was beyond words. It was heaven and hell and sunset and rainbows and the aura all fused into one divine harmony, and you couldn't look at it and keep the tears back. All the hosanna and strong gorgeousnesses have gone back to heaven and hell and the pole now. But no matter. If you could look out of my bedroom window at this moment, you would choke up, and when you got your voice you would say, This is not real. This is a dream. Such a singing together, and such a whispering together, and such a snuggling together of cozy soft colors, and such kissing and caressing, and such pretty blushing when the sun breaks out and catches those dainty weeds at it. You remember that weed garden of mine? And then, then the far hills, sleeping in a dim blue trance, oh, hearing about it is nothing. You should be here to see it. Good. I wish I could go on the platform and read. And I could, if it could be kept out of the papers. There's a charity school of 400 young girls in Boston that I would give my ears to talk to if I had some more, but, oh well, I can't go, and it's no use to grieve about it. This morning Jean went to town, also Payne, also the butler, also Katie, also the laundress. The cook and the maid and the boy and the roustabout and Jean's coachman are left, just enough to make it lonesome because they are around, yet never visible. However, the Harpers are sending Lee up to play billiards. Therefore, I shall survive. Affectionately, S. L. Clemens Early in June that year, Clemens had developed unmistakable symptoms of heart trouble of a very serious nature. It was angina pectoris, and while to all appearances he was as well as ever, and usually felt so, he was periodically visited by severe attacks of acute breast pains, which, as the months passed, increased in frequency and severity. He was alarmed and distressed, not on his own account, but because of his daughter Jean, a handsome girl, who had long been subject to epileptic seizures. In case of his death, he feared that Jean would be without permanent anchorage, his other daughter, Clara, following her marriage to Ossip Gabrilovich in October, having taken up residence abroad. This anxiety was soon ended. On the morning of December 24th, Jean Clemens was found dead in her apartment. She was not drowned in her bath, as was reported, but died from heart exhaustion, the result of her malady and the shock of cold water. Footnote questionable diagnosis d w m d end of footnote the blow to her father was terrible but heavy as it was one may perhaps understand that her passing in that swift painless way 
must have afforded him a measure of relief. To Mrs. Gabrilovich in Europe, Redden, Connecticut, December 29-09. Oh, Clara, Clara, dear, I am so glad she is out of it and safe. Safe. I'm not melancholy. I shall never be melancholy again, I think. You see, I was in such distress when I came to realize that you were gone far away, and no one stood between her and danger but me, and I could die at any moment. And then, oh, then what would become of her? For she was willful, you know, and would not have been governable. You can't imagine what a darling she was that last two or three days and how fine and good and sweet and noble and joyful thank heaven and how intellectually brilliant i had never been acquainted with jean before i recognized that but i mustn't try to write about her i can't i've already poured my heart out with the pen recording that last day or two i will send you that and you must let no one but Ossip read it. Goodbye. I love you so, and Ossip. Father. The writing mentioned in the last paragraph was his article, The Death of Jean, his last serious writing, and one of the world's most beautiful examples of elegiac prose. Footnote. Harper's Magazine, December 1910. End of footnote and later in the volume what is man and other essays end of section 49 recording by james k white chula vista